welcome to the Wondrous Atlas Creations Destiny, your guide to all places and plots exalted. I'm Aramithius. And I'm Rals. And this episode, we are talking about one of the fantastic scheming houses of the realm, House Sinus. So get all of your parties and plots out, people. But before we do that, if you ever want to send us any feedback about the show, tell us that we're wonderful, tell us that we're terrible, anything in between, do drop us an email at wondrousatlas at gmail.com. We would absolutely love to hear from you how we're doing, what we're doing, if there's anything we can look at, those sorts of things. So please do drop us an email. Also, drop us a review wherever you're listening. Apple Podcasts do reviews, Spotify do reviews, Stitcher do reviews. Wherever you're listening, we just love to get any sort of feedback so that we can either carry on doing what we're doing and know that we're doing this kind of stuff that you guys like, or we can just change it up and know how to change it up to best match what you want to listen to. And with that, I think we should probably get to House Sinus. To start with the structure of it then, like all of the other houses bar one, is named after its founder, the eponymous Sinus, who was a merchant, explorer, hedonist, Indiana Jones, by way of Fall of Rome. (laughs) Sinus is an interesting one, and we don't know too much about her. No, if she was kind of off doing things and getting the occasional pat on the head from what I can gather. And she absolutely sets the tone for the rest of the house. I mean, of those kind of three threads, the merchant explorer and the hedonist, there's one that kind of gets lost in the weeds. You don't hear an awful lot about sinus explorers, but sinus hedonists you absolutely have and sinus merchants you have as well. So that's kind of the tone for the house. The hedonists is what everyone knows them for. They're the ones that hold all the parties, but I suppose we should carry on with the structure before we get on to how everyone else sees them and what they do. Yeah, it's equally quite unique in that it doesn't have a single house head, like most of the houses do. They're not completely unique in not having one person at the top, but I can only think of two other houses that don't. But they're run by a triumvirate, by the three daughters of Sinus's That Exalted. She had several more, but none of them exalted. Yeah, I seem to remember that having a small number of exalted daughters was actually one of the things that absolutely rendered Sinus's heart, that she desperately wanted more, and that she only got three was one of her perennial disappointments. Yep, and those three daughters are called Wissel, Belar, and Phelan, and we will get a lot into them later. And internally, the house is actually divided into... Subhouses isn't quite the word, but... Basically, they use households throughout a lot of the second edition books, though that implies they're all living together, which equally isn't quite right. The family is of three branches, those who are descended from Wissel, those who are descended from Belar, and those who are descended of Phelan. And intermarriage within the house is only acceptable between the three and not within it. Yeah, I don't know whether we necessarily have any reasons for that. It was just a kind of a side note in some of the first edition materials. I don't think it's anything to do with inbreeding because the houses are big enough that that's generally not an issue. But I think it's just a matter of having enough influence and kind of everyone keeping an eye on everyone else sort of thing. Because as much as Sinus are quite familial, they are also quite keeping up with the Joneses amongst themselves. (laughs) And there's quite a bit of sense of yeah, that's your uncle over there, and he'll look out for you if someone comes for you, but you'd better not get on his bad side in the meantime. Yeah, and before the Empress disappeared, they were one of the far looser houses. They didn't... They existed on paper, but they were a lot more loose. They didn't really act as a house. They were just a bunch of people who were descended from Sinus that sort of did things. 
But once the Empress vanished, the house came together quite quickly into its current form. Mm-hmm. Which fits again with how they are. Again, they're the more party people, they're hedonists, they're merchants. They'd go off and do their own thing, have their own fun, make their own money. <laughs> yes. And that idea of kind of coalescing is something that we're going to come back to later because there's a big, big, big piece of coming together and consolidation that involves House Sinus, is not entirely involving House Sinus, which we'll get to a bit later, which could be a magnificent shift if you're trying to shake up realm politics. Indeed. But in the meantime, we should probably talk about what they're like as a house. As we've talked about, they are the socialites. They are renowned for being the best people to throw parties in the realm. They are the ones who have all the best galas, all of the best players, all of the best drugs, all of the best sex slaves. In fact, all of the slaves full stop. And they also have all the best luxury goods. If you want to have a good time, you go to House Sinus. That's basically what they're there for. The other bit to sort of touch on with them, and we didn't mention this in the Kathak episode, and we really should have, by nature of the dragon-blooded exaltation being hereditary, and third does tone this down, but it was, in a lot of the older editions, also considered quite strongly that your elemental aspect was also hereditary to a degree. It might skip a generation or two, etc., etc., but it rarely completely innovated. So the houses did have, and to some degree still do have, elemental affiliations all their own. Kathak was unsurprisingly, for what they were like, fire, whereas Sinus, again, completely unsurprisingly, given what they're like, is very, very wood-affiliated. Yes, because they're full of the whole kind of lust for life, joie de vivre, however you want to put it, just have a great time sort of thing, which is a very, very wood thing to have going on, or part of wood's affiliations. I'm trying to, trying to find another word for it, but it's not coming. Yeah. The other thing that's quite fun, we did just kind of make them sound like a bunch of sort of pre-revolutionary French aristocrats, which is the image. Uh, <laughs> yes, particularly given the slavery side of things, because yeah. why do it when you can't just invade somewhere and get that whole village to do it for you? Yeah, but second edition, just to get into the edition wars, because with a lot of the houses, there's a lot of edition wars going on. Yes. Second edition did say that their reputation was greatly exaggerated by basically everyone else. <laughs> and that they weren't actually that crazy themselves. It's just when you are holding a party, you have a show to put on and everyone just kind of assumes, oh, they're like this all the time because that's what you see. Yeah. And it wouldn't surprise me if that's not an image that's deliberately cultivated by the house anyway. Yeah. Just because if everyone just knows you as the one who throws the best parties, they're probably not going to think about you as someone who's a direct threat. I mean, there is definitely a certain shade of politics and blackmail being the key thing. Oh, yes. That House Sinus definitely get in for, that you do something stupid at a party. House Sinus can make sure that it absolutely doesn't get out for a fee or a few favours. But you don't think about them in those terms if your primary association is fantastic cultured galas and some of the best times of your several centuries of life being provided by them. To go into my broad categorization of what the houses are like, where I said that Kathak was a martial house, I categorize Sinus as an espionage house, along with one and a half others, which is, we'll get more into the specifics of it, but you did just sort of mention again, yeah, it's, they use their parties to keep eyes on you and they do quite a bit more dodgy stuff that no one really expects. But third edition, again, does try to redeem them. Third edition does a lot of redemption work for everyone. 
<laughs> and yes. it focuses very much on sort of the pursuit of perfection aspect, that they're just trying to be the best at everything, throw the best parties, wear the best clothes, be the best lovers, the whole bit. And provide the best goods and everything. Uh, be the best soldiers, um, I don't necessarily think is out of that sort of a remit. I'd yeah. imagine that you would have quite a few spectacularly good duelists yeah. in House Sinus, for example, because you can pursue the craft and in the way that it's not quite the same thing as kind of a military machine. They make excellent warriors, but terrible soldiers, I think yes. would be the way to phrase it. That's a good way of putting it. Which, just to turn us back into a 40k podcast again, because the overlap here is surreal, they are the Emperor's children. They are just pre-heresy Emperor's children. That's the whole thing. <laughs> yes. No, particularly if you... I mean, this is only going to be relevant if you know 40k particularly, but this is going into the dim and dot depth of 40k history. The Index Astartes era of portrayal of the Emperor's children and Fulgrim that was sort of released sort of about 2005-ish, they had a big bent on Fulgrim was promised perfection by Slanesh. It was a willing pact because Slanesh offered Fulgrim a form of perfection and that then went into, right, you've now got perfect warriors, now let's get you into perfect poets, perfect sculptures, rounded people, renaissance people, and then that feeds into, oh, now let's get them have the best time and that sort of thing. And then it sort of creeps into the sensory overload kind of Cenobite-esque portrayals that you get of Slanesh and the Empress children in modern 40k, but yeah. Sinus is absolutely that sort of thing. It's everything to excess, even performing well. So yeah. to a degree, you can have a lot of concepts fit within the house if you're thinking about the kinds of characters that you can build. The only thing that doesn't really fit with that is that they're not numbered amongst the military houses simply because they don't have the numbers, yeah. I think is the main thing. It doesn't go into a huge amount of details about what how Sinus has done with its legions since it got them. But I would not be surprised if they are desperately trying to get every single legionnaire up to a ridiculous personal martial quality to fit in with that kind of idea of perfection. Religiously, they're nothing to write home about. They're not particularly devout, but they're not really blasphemous, like Ragara. Um, <laughs> they're... They don't really help the Order root out the heresies, and they'll keep an eye on them if it's a piece of juicy gossip, but they don't have strong opinions on religion either way. <laughs> no, and that comes into quite a few of the satrapies and so on that we'll, that we'll get to. It makes them quite politically useful for holding threshold satrapies sufficiently well that the locals don't have a whole heap of umbrage. Compared to the Kathak episode, where there's a running theme of religious heresy, that can potentially be something that you can think of as relevant to Sinus, but they're likely to handle it a lot better, <laughs> frankly. And equally, you'll notice throughout the rest of this, Kathak, not to insult them too much, but House Kathak's kind of a boring house. They didn't have much going for them. Because uh, <laughs> all of the additions kind of agree on what Kathak is. <laughs> yeah, there's not a huge amount of conflict and additional angles to kind of bring out. But this one will have a lot more because yeah. God bless first edition edgy white wolf. Um, <laughs> we mentioned yes. a little bit about the blackmail side of things. First edition said that Sinus Whistle, one of the triumvirate of leaders of it. Is it Whistle or is it Weissel? I don't know. I am assuming Whistle because I don't want to assume that the Dragonbloods have German in their vocab as well. That's true. <laughs> The linguist in me gets annoyed enough that Venif exists in an otherwise <laughs> standard phonology. <laughs> <laughs> yep, fair enough. 
Um, anyway. But yeah, they said that Whistle was the one who started running a seemingly discreet brothel for the influential Dragonbloods of unusual tastes to read illegal, offering services that would make them particularly unpopular if they became public. And then literally everyone who goes in there then becomes a house sinus asset because, yeah, you've just let the creepy spy masters see all of the disturbing things you like to do. Yeah, that's not particularly subtle, but that's precisely how they work. It's like, come, have a good time. Have a really good time. Go on, have a really good time. And don't mind this camera. Well, not camera exactly, but just lots and lots of things that they then can't deny. If the houses persisted into XWAD, it would be a camera. Yeah, absolutely. Slight tangent, but Exalted has produced various alternate settings within the fan community if you're new to Exalted. And Exalted Modern is one of those, probably one of the bigger ones. So if you are running an Exalted Modern, then yes, absolutely. House Sinus is going to be one of the ones with the zoom lens while you are busy having that illicit affair to try and blackmail you. And in the standard setting, it's any and all ways to make sure that they have ironclad testimonial evidence that you are what they say you are. It's the comparison between them and House Sessus, which is the obvious one to compare them to. It's the other spy house. Yep. House Cessus is much more what you would consider to be a spy in a fantasy setting. They are there for information. They are there for papers. Sinus is a lot more sleaze and embarrassment. They want to get you personally rather than to get anything big or grand. Yes, absolutely. But one of the big things about them as well is that this can never get too public, which is why Whistle or whoever kind of strikes me as someone you need to handle really delicately <laughs> because if sinus ever gets out as the house that does what it's doing and ever gets to the point where it's known that if you go to a sinus party and you do something stupid that will get out then no one will ever kick back at a sinus party again the gossip wheel will run and then all of the houses revenues will dry up this isn't that Sinus parties are providing a torrent of information for the house. It's just, Mm. it's a steady trickle and it's a filing cabinet to be used whenever the house needs it. And it's something that's also quite individual. We mentioned before that the house is quite scattered in how it does things. and There's no central depository of all the house sinus secrets. Each individual dynast who runs this sort of thing has their own method of recording it. Some will have some kind of sorcerously bound grimoire that they write everything down in and then seal away with some huge magics. Some have a ridiculously good eidetic memory. Others will have some kind of sorcerous recording device that's locked to everyone but them. Those sorts of things. So they will have their own ways of storing up their own secrets that they will then use on an individual basis. Yeah. Comparing and contrasting with how Sassus is the nice way to get the feel of what Sinus particularly is. Because the fact that House Sessus is spying on people is kind of the realm's worst kept secret. Yes. Like, from everything I've read, pretty much everyone who's of a reasonable amount of power and influence knows that every Sessus you encounter is probably a spy, but they're still too useful to get rid of. Whereas Sinus, the moment people know about it, they can't do their job anymore. Yeah, I think that's part of the reason why they play up the innocent socialite party boy image, because they need to maintain that, oh, we're harmless persona that's the only way that it ever actually works yeah as much as it's treated as pretty much an open secret within the house itself trading secrets is noted to be a kind of a house pastime almost and if you want to get on in the house then 
telling someone who has authority over you a particularly juicy piece of gossip would be some way to getting into their good books and advancing within the house. This sort of thing of gossip being everything and secrets being so central to the house, it does put them in an interesting position as regards marriages. You tend to get spouses who are basically milked for being espionage assets and then kind of realise what on earth's going on. There's literally one of the characters that's got a husband that is basically drinking himself into a stupor because he's realised what a bunch of backstabbing, seek-stealing people the house is. And basically, by the time anyone's married, then they will have already had all their secrets plumbed and been thoroughly investigated and that sort of thing. Um, and we should probably talk about something other than all of the secret mongering at this yeah. point as well, because they are known for other things. Uh, in particular, trade. Slavery! <laughs> let's, let's, let's not dance around it. it it's slavery. <laughs> okay, slavery. Yes, absolutely. They have the realm's monopoly on slave trade. There are many in various ways that this is done. They get slaves from trading with the guild. They get slaves from conducting minor invasions here and there and taking prisoners. It's implied in some places that they can potentially get them from realm holdings as well. Yes. In first edition, Bilar straight up does tell some of the Sinus satraps that if they can't make their normal tithe and tax contributions, they can make up the difference in bodies. Yes, they will get people into indentured servitude, basically, and get slavery that way. A lot of their income is from the slave trade. And as much as we're talking the slave trade, which is going to be ringing all sorts of transatlantic alarm bells um, and so on for those of us who know a good deal about the history between Africa and Europe and the Americas, that's not the only types of slaves that they will provide. They have a training camp, essentially, on the Blessed Isle where the slaves are taken and re-educated to be whatever Sinus want them to be. So if they want people to toil in the plantations, they probably don't spend too long there. They just get noted on a piece of paper and sent out to work their short, horrible lives in the fields. But you also get people who are trained up to be tutors or physicians or other more specialised trades as well. And in addition to selling slaves, the house will also rent them out to various people. Yes, and that's important because one of the key bits of lore of the realm a, Sinus was officially afforded by the Empress the monopoly on it, but B, the unexalted are not allowed to keep slaves. It's a legal thing that only dragonbloods can have them. The additions differ on specifically why. I kind of prefer second in particular goes for a one of just, yeah, no, this is just again how the Empress reinforced dragonblooded superiority after <clears throat> trying to dismantle all of the um, previous things. Yeah, that's kind of the unvarnished nastiness of it. Third puts the spin of it that um, I can't remember the precise wording, but it's basically saying that only the Dragonbloods have the level of spiritual enlightenment and wisdom to go with it to properly wield the capacity to own other people. Third is looking slavery exactly in the eye, knows exactly what it is, and is saying, yes, the Dragonbloods are the only ones because owning a human is such a big deal. It's a little softer in third, maybe, but there's no dancing around it. Slavery is horrible. If you didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's various glosses that can be put on it. But the thing is, this also plays into Sinus's spycraft, because when they rent out their slaves to usually patricians and other wealthy mortals all over the place, they're not allowed to be the ones doing it. They need a dragon-blooded overseer 
So they'll usually send a young sinus, usually one of the ones as their first proper assignments before they're allowed to hold galas of their own and the like, to go and oversee the slaves. And usually that just manifests as them sitting down and exploiting the um, hospitality of the people who are actually directing them to do whatever they want them to do and also spying on them. But it is the case and the weirdly the Immaculate Order is the one who most frequently uses this as a cudgel against House Sinus. If anything happens to those slaves, either if they go missing or escape, it's on the overseer's head, not anyone else. Because they're supposed to be there directing them and doing all of that, because you're not supposed to let the mortals do that. No, absolutely, because the ownership is still with the house, and so the owner is the one who bears the brunt. Um, So uh, another interesting corollary of this one that kind of ties into the luxury goods trade as well. But because of all of the slaves that are going backwards and forwards, House Sinus actually has one of the largest navies of the great houses as well. It's all tied up with merchant trade and the slave trade, but they also have a fair amount of things going around the inland sea and to wherever slaves need to be picked up from. One of the other more nasty things that we've kind of glossed over, or if, well, slavery is horrible to begin with, but one of the other nasty things that happens as a practice it's only really tied to the realm but i'm sure it happens elsewhere is the idea of the dream eaten oh boy yeah basically when a fairy gets you yes they do happen elsewhere great forks uses them liberally ah cool the dream eaten are slaves who are sold to the fair folk and people beyond creation and quite they're sourced from it they're the result of a fairy getting you they're less sold to the fairies because the realm doesn't deal with the fairies friendly yeah yeah you you give people to the fairies fairies subsist off people's emotions and dreams and eventually if they eat too much of that particular person's soul in the process of extracting the dreams and the emotions and everything else this person will become docile compliant and generally not really capable of much in the way of abstract thought, but will otherwise carry out tasks. These people are called the Dream Eaten, and they are compliant in a way that normal slaves are not, because they do not have the will to ex- to exist anymore, and it's nasty. A lot of the Great Forks Lord describes them with the euphemism um, that a lot of the ministries of Great Forks use for it, that I absolutely adore for how sort of unsettling it is, alive on a technicality. Yeah. If you can think of people on life support, but still able to do things and move around. Not even that, because they're not aware. It's more they're, again, to use the less pleasant euphemism, meat puppets. It's the the lights are on, but nobody's home. It's they're walking about and you can tell them. Oftentimes you have to do it slowly and loudly because the brain isn't really there either. Or more often have someone else show them and then they will just repeat it. There's very little to them. It's like the, the standard thing of, um, again, not to keep dragging this to the scavenger lines, but that is my area of expertise. They aren't kept with the slaves in the scavenger lines. They're kept with the beasts of burden because there's no person there. It's a person who's had their complete soul, their entire identity, their entire mind eaten. Yes. Okay. And with that, <laughs> shall we go to something that's a bit more cheerful? Drugs. Drugs! <laughs> a bit more cheerful. Not much. Yeah, how sinus, how sinus deal. Yeah, basically, the other house to compare them to, I suppose, is Venif. How Venif deals in everything that you are happy to say a merchant deals in, and how sinus deals in everything that would be illegal because they do vice. 
be that slavery, be that drugs, be that. I tend to run them as also being the ones that do all the alcohol um, because it kind of fits. Yeah, absolutely. And it, yeah, it fits with sort of the party boy image, so to speak. Yeah. They don't have a monopoly. They don't have a legal monopoly on the drug trade. They just have an effective one. Yes. And there are controls on drugs in the realm. You can only buy hard drugs with jade. Precisely what hard drugs are will vary. I, there's nothing as strict as like the class system for drugs in the realm. But the stronger stuff, I would kind of classify it just off a cuff as any sort of opiate. That sort of would be a hard drug. I don't really imagine that there's great demand for well, I imagine cannabis would possibly be used and that sort of thing, but... Cannabis is, um, again, very big in the scavenger lands. Great Forks grows loads of it, so probably. Yeah, but I don't think that that would be something that would be exclusive to the class that trades in jade. Yeah, because the advantage of jade, as we've sort of mentioned before, technically, in practice this changes, but technically only dragons should be able to pay in jade. It's why I tend to... You, you put hard drugs as anything opiate and above, I actually tend to put their measure of hard drugs as probably magical, i.e. they're trying to restrict this. I go with it as like a thing of a regular human cannot handle touching the stuff, because there are a lot of magical intoxicants, usually derived, again, from fair folk stuff, which you just you don't want to be touching. They don't go into a whole lot of detail about what those hard drugs are, but if you're looking for some inspiration for that sort of thing, if you really want to go into detail on magical intoxicants. Read China Mieville's Fast Lag series, particularly Pedido Street Station, because that goes into the magical drug trade and crimes therein in a fair amount of detail. So you can see what kinds of ideas you can get from magically infused drugs out of that. As well as drugs, they also deal in the substances <laughs> of the drug trade. We've kind of mentioned them as traders in general. This extends to anything medicinal or anti-medicinal they are your poisoners par excellence in the realm and your doctors yes and that stems from their trade networks because they can do synthetic poisons in a way no one else can because they have the trade network to pull it off they can bring a poison that's found only in some endangered squid somewhere in the far west blend it with some obscure tree bark from the northeast and you won't be able to find anything that will counter that without having a similar wide range of ingredients and how sinus as well compared to some of the other houses they're not nearly as unique in this as they are in some of their other things but how sinus talks a lot we mentioned that they did coalesce quite hard that is equally as true when they communicate hence it is the thing of yeah weird endangered squid poison that cousin bill told you about out in the west plus funny tree bark from the far east that aunt jenny said about and then Jimbo on the aisle can be like, oh, what if we put these together? Because you will have all heard it at a party or at an affair or something like that. Yes. And that is one thing that the recipes for all of this stuff never, ever, 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 ever gets traded with anyone else. The recipes for the poisons and their antidotes is noted as one of the things that House Sinus never gives away. Indeed. The other thing as well, we did mention, I did describe earlier that they do vice. This isn't realm-wide. It's rare because lots of Imperial Monopolies are realm-wide. This last Monopoly that they have is only on the Isle, but they do have the Monopoly on sex work, which is kind of the other reputation that House Sinus has that we didn't really talk about earlier there. They're not just the party holders and the hedonists, they are the courtesans. Yes. So if you want to have a professional concubine, then House Sinus is where you go to find one. 
and presumably any sort of lower class red light district as well would provide some basic income for the house. And that sort of situation lends itself very well to things like pillow talk and all the rest of it. And if your paymasters are the people who specialize in gossip, this is yet another route to get to the kind of salacious information that is the lifeblood and recurring theme of the house. So that's one of the things that, if you hadn't realised already, is the thing that we're hammering home about this. Everything is recorded, everything is noted down, everything is tracked, and everything can be used. Not to say that everything is used, but everything can be used, because how Sinus's real goal is information. Yeah, they have basically one of the biggest spy networks in the realm, though unlike the owners of the other two, no one really appreciates that it's a spy network. Because the other two houses that compete with them for it are Cessus and Iselsi. Iselsi are a whole different problem for later, but Cessus are your official spies. But yeah, every Sinus, like you said, they record everything. And unlike Cessus, who go into an espionage job knowing what they want to get, basically, they are more official, more professional. Sinus are a lot more passive. They will sit around and they'll see what happens, and most of what a house Sinus spy gets is completely worthless. And they're fine with that because they're still partying and having a good old time. But then sometimes when things do happen, it becomes very, very useful. Less for big, broad political goals and more for the personal side. Yes, it gives you a way to get leverage over important people in your life to attain whatever personal goals you're going to get for the house. And there are just so many ways that you interact with House Cessus that something is going to come up that they can use. And basically, the bottom line for House Celsius is that they are one we'll of the Sinus, close, even. Yeah. And one of the, what well, the bottom line for the things with House Sinus is that basically they are the, one of the closest things to indispensable for dynastic life as you can get. Everyone will use them for something, whether that's the doctors and surgeons, of which they have some of the best in the realm, or the drugs, the parties, the slaves. Realm society exists on the back of slavery. So without House Sinus's cooperation, you are pretty much in the dark to operate as a great house. So everyone uses House Sinus for something. And house Sinus can always get something that they can use out of any particular person. They're insidious in a way that not many other houses are. Now, to be fair, a lot of other houses are shady. But House Sinus can be aptly described as slimy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. But yeah, now we get on to the uncomfortable thing, given all we've just said about it. Allies and friends are kind of hard to come by. More or less. I mean, everyone kind of gets along with them and likes them, but... No one wants the embarrassment of being formally tied to them. Yeah, they're kind of the people that are awesome to have a good time with at the weekend, but then you go back to your day job afterwards and you don't really want anything to do with them while they're still sloshed and asking you to come out midweek sort of thing. It's that sort of thing. And this is, sort of plays out in the marriage arena as well, because they marry a lot of places, but they don't necessarily do strategic things with them. We mentioned before that they marry a lot in-house, enough to warrant some comment on how the in-house marriage practices work. And the other houses take advantage of their less strategic marrying so that they can kind of give their less valuable scions and less valuable house members to house sinus and just get them out of the way. Yeah, house sinus, weirdly. It's never outright said that they don't have good matchmakers, but given how they behave in the marriage, 
it seems that House Sinus, despite all of its other social masterstrokes, doesn't have good matchmakers. Because the marriages that it makes outside of House are often seemingly to the average eye anyway. I have a tinfoil hat theory about this. They seem poorly researched. They seem to just be, for use of a better term, random. And all of the other houses kind of will use Sinus Scions as an excuse to marry up. And House Sinus will often marry other other houses that are well beneath the station that they need. The tinfoil hat theory, of course, is that this again plays into the espionage because they can go for the ones that the other houses think, oh, they're not important. We can give them a sinus husband or a sinus wife and it's fine, but that's an in and that's all they need. Yes, it just gives them a presence. The one thing to flag on that is that we have some second edition material that says that Cessus marries into them quite regularly, but both houses know that this is just espionage. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, how Cessus knows every time we marry to a Sinus, they're spying on us. And Sinus knows the same. And it's just the wonderful case of, it's spy versus spy. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Smith, the exalted version. Well, no, because they get along. <laughs> the idea here is that they're spying on each other. <laughs> It's wonderful. I absolutely love it. The second edition, in its edginess, tries to make it sound really serious and cool and black ops, but the more you think about it, the more it is just kind of a farce. Third edition reiterates this and says that how Sinus makes promises to Cessus of getting them the specialist materials that only Sinus can provide. But we mentioned earlier that there was some horrifying, terrifying prospect to further the coalescence of Sinus, and that's the idea of the intermarriage between Cessus and Sinus going all the way to the top. I think we'll have to cover the ramifications of this more in their Civil War standing section, though, because that's yes. where it fits. <laughs> Absolutely. But they have so much in the way of complementary stuff. There's already all of those intermarriages going on. And it's just too nice a thing to do. You've got two sides of the espionage coin. You've got Cessus's legions. And you've got something that could just be a behemoth on so many levels <laughs> if you bring those two together. Because Cessus and Sinus fit as two sides of the same coin if you hadn't already gathered that's how we're sort of seeing that sort of thing so and just to clarify on something that we said earlier it's the idea of um where the mutual espionage happens uh how sinus can often get the other the upper hand because uh they have drugs that they can get the house tessus people hooked on mm. and just ensure their loyalty by cutting off their supply if they do yeah. anything particularly shady. And, so. and equally, a house Cessus spy is probably, compared to a Sinus one, better trained to walk around the house, look for secret documents, find this, that and the other. The James Bond stuff, well, half of the James Bond stuff, because the other half that James Bond is well known for is where Sinus excels. The moment <laughs> you walk into that bedroom, you are being played like a fiddle. <laughs> and yeah, it's the case of Cessus are described as very professional. Which strikes me as the case of, yeah, once Sinus starts honey trapping, they do not know what to do. <laughs> yeah, I can see that one working. But the other big ally or frenemy, I don't think that there's an outright ally to Sinus in any of this, but they've got enough people that they have enough dealings with that they kind of half succeed because of those dealings that they should probably be considered that way. They have a professional relationship. Is the guild. Yeah, they have a professional relationship. Um, and there's a lot of mutual trade that goes on between Sinus and the Guild just to make sure that Sinus can get all of the stuff that it needs and so on and so forth. So there's an understanding there. 
There's squabbles over the river province. Oh, there's so much. Due to a lot of the geography more than anything else. The guild basically owns the river province is the key thing to know. Lukshai is the big army, but they don't mind that. Okay. Nexus is basically the guild's fortress. It doesn't officially own the place, but yeah, basically. And House Sinus, it has a presence in the river province because like you mentioned, geography, they need to get stuff up to Great Falls, which is one of theirs. We'll cover this in their holdings. Sinus does also spend a lot of time in Great Forks because Great Forks is the kind of city that a Sinus would love to go to. But the guild, the guild doesn't just have a monopoly on slaves in the River Province. It doesn't technically have a monopoly on anything, but in practice, it has a monopoly on almost everything. It runs all of the markets, and whenever Sinus tries to get a foothold there, the guild, it's not even above hiring Anathema out to try and knock House Sinus traders off. <laughs> they, yes. they do not care. It's the guild. Yeah, but that said, there are enough kind of beneficial agreements that I wanted them on the list of potential allies as well. Yeah. The only things that are really mentioned explicitly is that how Sinus can get a great deal on Nexus mercenaries and that sort of things in certain situations. They get a huge discount because of the amount of trade that they do with the guild and the working relationship that they have. I basically take it as read that if you want something to be traded between the guild and House Sinus, it will be traded between the guild and House Sinus. Yeah. Equally, though, the key thing to note is that whilst, again, House Sinus is basically the realm's only presence in the scavenger lands, the guild isn't so stupid as to do it. House Sinus can leverage its friendship with the guild for itself. It can very rarely leverage it for the realm. It's the case of whenever House Sinus tries it when they're trying to make overtures at Lukshai, the guild just tells them no. Because the guild has a better deal when the scavenger lands is free. They're not loyal to Lukshai either, but they like Nexus being free because it means that in practice, Nexus is theirs. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's fair enough. But yeah, then we get into the enemies, which the guild is also. As I sort of mentioned, in the scavenger lands especially, the guild will quietly pass a sack of jade to a solar that's just popped up somewhere to go and knock some sinus drug dealers off of their throne so that they can get in on the market. And the guild doesn't see this as a problem. Because it's just business. We are getting into the point that I use the guild as almost comedically evil a lot, but yeah. Yes. I mean, so long as the solar doesn't make any overtures towards the guild itself, because the guild is proudly owned by humans. Yeah, it's why they'll hire out a solar to do it, but you won't be a member of the guild. They're happy to use you and they're happy to pay you. It's business. It's just that they don't want you having influence over them. And frankly, the scavenger lands is so full of exalts of all stripes that... Um, <laughs> They're actually relatively easy to come by for the guild. Yes. If you go to the right places in the scavenger lands, absolutely. I mean, Sijan is probably going to be the place where you find liminals when that book comes out. Great Forks has already been noted as the place where you go to find exigents. Nexus is full of everything. <laughs> yeah. And Mahasuchi isn't too far away, relatively speaking. Although I don't uh, think the guild would go down there. It's a bit heart of darkness. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But there's enough strings that the guild can pull to get things in to deal with House Sinus if they get too big for their boots. Within the realm, getting too big for their boots is a concern. And that's the overriding problem for House Sinus when you think about the other houses. Niman is probably the biggest enemy out there just because House Sinus has such a reputation as being licentious and not particularly pious and indulging in things that the Immaculate Order generally frowns on, that if Naman gets too much power, then she's pious enough that she's likely to lead a crusade against them if she gets the throne 
and the Immaculate Order would probably not shed any tears over that at all. The other house that they have trouble with is the house that everyone has trouble with. <laughs> house Ragara. They owe them money, like everyone does. House Ragara are the bank, and they're also literally the most evil people on creation. I will not be taking criticism. The thing with it that makes me quite happy with this, though, and one of the things that makes, again, in our Civil War section, makes House Sinus very interesting and very scary, they are having to lean more on their blackmail against House Ragara to avoid making repayments they can't afford. Or Which just blackmail have- in general, just making sure they have a higher level of incoming so they don't need to take out any new loans. But this does mean that since House Sinus are actively trying to scope out Ragara because they need them for the money, that uh, House Sinus are one of the best bets for figuring out the stuff about House Ragara that people aren't supposed to know. <laughs> that's true. And that's a very, very good hook for an investigative um, episode. If you want to do paranormal investigation with House Sinus, then you can absolutely do that. Last and final enemy. You're going to have to unpack this one because this was yours, um, I think. Yeah, Cessus. Uh, down as a question mark just because they're so similar, basically, is my assumption. Yeah, there. it's the case of Cessus likes being the secret hand. They like being the ones that know everything and see everything. And Cessus are one of the few houses that's kind of onto the fact that Sinus is also running an espionage operation and they're not the biggest fans of it. I see them as, again, it's like we said with the marriage schemes, how Cessus is willing to be nice to House Sinus for as long as it thinks it can turn their espionage engine to its use. And it's the sort of case of the moment Cessus actually appreciates them as a real threat, then I think there will be trouble. Yes, it's the case of who finds out about who's trying to destroy who. Although I really think it would be a bad move for either of them to completely destroy the other because they're so valuable as an additional set of assets that it wouldn't be total annihilation. Yeah, and then we get to the Civil War, which we'll cover (laughs) a bit of Edition Wars first before we get to putting my tinfoil hat on again. So, yes, First Edition broadly just says that they really, really, really want the throne, but they don't really stand much of a chance of getting it because no one would support them. Yes. First edition kind of strikes me that it was, they're kind of working out what would work in terms of a civil war breakdown and making everyone wanting a pitch for the throne was kind of the way forward almost. But I don't know. That's, that's me spitballing. Yeah. Second edition says that they want it, mostly not because they actually have a direct eagerness to rule, a la how first edition said it, but more because they don't see themselves surviving if anyone else gets it, <laughs> which is... Not incorrect. Yeah, they reckon they'll be disbanded or, like, full-on purged. But they know that they don't really have a strong candidate of their own, so they're rather just leveraging their spy network, waiting for a candidate that likes them to appear either in their house or in any of the others, that they can then just dump all of their blackmail at once to support. Yeah, that kind of works. I would also actually see them benefiting from uh, realm fragmentation quite nicely, because they're loosely built enough anyway that they wouldn't suffer too much if they got broken up. They, I think, would benefit a bit more from a kind of a long, drawn-out civil war because no strong winner means that they can carry on selling weapons or amassing other forms of trade to pretty much everyone and building up their war chest to the point where they can afford to pay mercenaries to finish everything off for them which is something that 3rd edition develops quite nicely. We said about a discount on Nexus Mercenaries 
I should probably correct that and say that this was something that was offered to the guild in exchange for the guild having sway over certain seats on the deliberative if how Sinus has any particular say on the power structure as a result of the Civil War. So House Sinus is one of the ones that's kind of directly preparing for the Civil War in more subtle ways and also preparing for its aftermath, potentially. Potentially giving the Guild an in into a post-war deliberative, which is quite a scary thought. This is House Sinus being lobbied. But now we get the tinfoil hat on because (laughs) I see a way that House Sinus can not only have a good time out of the Civil War, but could potentially win it. Shared victory, I think. Well, no, they okay. come out of this. One house wins, and that house is House Sinus. Okay, it just happens Explain. to have a lot more people in it. Explain. So we teased quite a lot about the potential of House Sessus and House Sinus putting aside their differences. <laughs> um, and frankly, if it comes too close to a civil war, we'll cover this more in the Sessus episode. But Sessus really doesn't like most of the big contenders. It does not trust them. It's weird that the only one who could have stood a chance that House Sessus likes is Kathak, and they're not running. So, step one, House Sessus and House Sinus both appreciate what the other one is doing espionage-wise. Mm-hmm. They see a civil war is coming. They, again, because both of them have good intelligence network, would probably have a bit of foresight as to it coming. Because I don't imagine this being a spark in a powder keg moment. I think people would be able to see the writing on the wall. Because, I mean, even in present day in creation, everyone can kind of see that this is going to happen. So, the two of them start working together. Before the war is broken, they don't declare that they're doing it because that would be a catalyst to the fire going up. Both of them are sneaky enough that they can get away with this. When someone else starts the war, probably Ragara, or maybe Nemon, it'll be one of those two idiots, those two suddenly do announce, yeah, actually, we're not two houses anymore, we're fusing, potentially by marrying one or multiple of the triumvirate to a bunch of Cessus' council of twelve. Council of some members. Um, Cessus <laughs> is run by a council. That is the important thing. They marry those, fuse the houses. Now, they have the biggest spy network, par none, that covers all of the realm and all of the isle, how Sessus are not the best assassins in the realm, but they're very good at it. How Sinus have all the dirt and know pretty much all of the, shall we say, less than pleasant ways into people's houses. Because again, they've got the courtesan thing. They will know how to get into the bedroom without the missus knowing. And they have poisons. And they have poisons. Behold, as many of the other candidates, Nemon herself I think is a bit too big to do this to, but I think anyone else's candidate who isn't that big or scary pretty much all die at the same time. They're clever enough, they would orchestrate this. Cessus <laughs> has legions. They talk to Kathak, because again, Kathak basically said, we'll support anyone who looks like they have a good chance of winning. There's no other claimants. We have a claimant. Kathak, will you support us, please? All right, there'll be stability. You're getting this done quickly. Yes. Two out of the three major martial houses are now completely united. No one really has the forces to stop that. The only problem in this entire plan is if Peleps get it into their head that they can take the throne. And even then, I think that Cessus and Sinus between them would be able to play Venif against them. Enough yes. to make sure that this just becomes a war in the West. I was going to say, that kind of setup requires that Venif is used to keep Peleps at bay enough to keep them all occupied. I reckon with Sinus's network and Cessus's skills, they'd be able to secure the Isle like that. And Cessus are sneaky and flashy enough, frankly, as weirdly and hypocritical as that sounds, 
that they would try and do it all in one day. <laughs> yeah, I could see that working. But hey, we should probably get to talking about famous sinuses at this point. Oh, there's a lot of them. <laughs> well, yes, there is a lot of them. <laughs> so let's talk about the triumvirate, the bosses. I keep calling them the triumvirates. I can't remember if they're ever referred to as that in any sources, but if not, they should be. That's a cool title. We have Whistle, Balar, and Phelan, as we mentioned. They're the only exalted children of Sinus herself, and they spend most of their times in the Palace of the Trees in Pangu, which is one of the holdings in the Isle. Which we'll get to later. They host parties, orgies, galas, all other fun times. And the three of them basically alternate going to the Imperial City to do much the same there. So basically they are the kind of... They're a political party, if you will excuse the pun. Yeah, they always have a presence in the capital, which is something that the other house heads can't say. <laughs> yes, I imagine that's quite deliberate. It's part of the other reason that I said earlier they could probably secure the aisle very quickly, because they're the only ones who can guarantee they'd be there. Yeah, makes sense. But if we start off with Fallon, first of all, uh, who is... We've got a little bit of clashes between editions as to what each of the triumvirate does. Broadly, first and second edition agree, and third edition changes. Yes. But yeah, we have Fallon being the oldest and the only one who's still married to a Cessus. Cessus Carves, who is a powerful and influential judge in the Imperial City. Hmm. Funny that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but Fallon is economically savvy and is also one of the biggest players in the vice operations, so to speak. She deals a lot in blackmail and the spying side of things. Apparently, she also wants to take the slave trade away from the guild entirely, which is one heck of a goal. Yeah, first and second edition, I should specify here. It's not worldwide she wants to do this. Basically, she wants to make sure that all of the realm slaves are sinus-sourced, sinus-trafficked. She wants to cut the guild out of that loop. Makes sense. Which is still ridiculously impressive to pull off, but not as terrifying as it initially sounds. Yeah, that makes sense. She basically wants to cut the guild out of the loop because she is the financier, she is the money person, and they're, as she sees it, an unnecessary cost. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. She is also the most optimistic of the three, to be fair. The other two are quite content, without Phelan's prodding, anyway, to just sort of sit there and do parties because they don't see the house doing anything. She's the one that has goals and ambitions, and she's also the most prone to face any threat, be it political, economic, whatever, head on, be it by throwing money at it or by, in some cases, straight up fighting it. <laughs> this is the realm. <laughs> Third edition has, it's not necessarily contradictory in all of this, she still carries on as kind of the most financially savvy of the triumvirate, but she is cold-blooded, which it doesn't really read that way. If you think about her being optimistic, you kind of think cold, calculating, realistic. So that's changed a little bit. She's also been the most well-traveled of the triumvirate, which makes sense if you want to kind of link her in with seeing what the guild is doing and wanting to deal with it. And she's also, just to make a difference for the whole thing, or rather to make a difference from the house sinus stereotype, she's also lost her taste for hedonism, apparently. So yeah. she's the one who's going to be sitting in the corner at the party, rolling her eyes at all the children doing the stupid things. <laughs> yeah, whereas for her household, as we sort of describe the sub-faction of the house broadly, first and second sort of describe them as very good artists, dreamers, musicians, they're the creatives. But also, second edition, bless the second edition edge, so, Phelan, she's going to be a couple of centuries old. 
maybe more, given her, given the timing of all this. She's a direct daughter of Sinus herself, so yeah, she's got a couple hundred years on her. And I shall quote from the Manual of Exalted Power Dragonblood, Phelan has trained most of her descendants in the arts of love, personally. God bless Second Edition's Edge. Read that however you will. <laughs> I, d- yeah, I, I'm just going to leave it there and move on swiftly. <laughs> yeah. Whistle, she's a nervous little thing, first and second anyway. She yes. doesn't, she's averse to change. She's not ambitious like Phelan is, but she's really quite worried about the house falling any further in standing. She's very pensive, she's very thinky, very slow to act, but is excellent at planning and throwing parties, and unlike the other household, she's not really depraved or hedonistic, she's just very good at what she does. But she is still an apt blackmailer, and she is very good at keeping her eyes open. Yes. Uh, Most of that gets kind of glossed over. There's some bits of it that are retained in third edition, but it talks about her being frail in her outer appearance. And so that kind of nervous, shy, retiring character can all make sense within that sort of an archetype. Third has her as a master poisoner as well, as well as a talented poet. She also runs the drug trade. She's also hitched to Assessus, who is most of the time drunk. When I talked earlier about the example of someone who realises what on earth is happening with what House Sinus is planning and is too horrified about it, this is the example. This is Whistle's husband who will, generally speaking, be drunk because he just can't stand what he's been married into. And because of that, Whistle has to look elsewhere to be satisfied, and she goes to Sinus Pertalin for that, her second cousin. So, yes... I don't know whether this is them actively trying to portray Sinus as a sort of Descent of Rome Caligula-style house and throwing a little bit of minor inbreeding and incest in there to emphasise that point, but it kind of feels that way. There is another little bit in there that is interesting. Patalin is commander of a house Sinus's legions, and she is very, very solidly and physically built, gets on well with her troops. She's basically the perfect lead from the front general, is how I read yeah. things. And Whistle is apparently trying to push Patalin onto the throne and have her as vizier. I don't know whether that means Whistle is trying to get Patalin onto the throne of House Sinus and get rid of the other two in the triumvirate, or whether she's trying to set Patalin up for a run for the Scarlet Throne. Which is a, mo- a lot bolder. Yes, but as a kind of a big charismatic general who can face off any physical challenge and be a strong unifying force mm. and have someone who can stand behind you and manage the politics, those two as a pair could work quite nicely as a way of running the Scarlet Throne. But it's not clear from the text, unless I'm missing some huge cues, whether she's trying to angle to run the house or to run the realm. And then we get to Bilar. Bilar is, not to be too nice to the other two, Bilar's the evil one. She's a sorceress. She's trained at the heptagram. She's, again, quiet and pensive. Phelan was really the only one that was loud and in your face. She's very, very secretive, yep. very, very shrewd. And whilst the spying was Phelan's idea, Bilar's household has refined it to an art, utilising sorcery and seduction in tandem to get dirt on uppity satraps to bring them into line. And she's personally a sadist, and her sisters, especially Phelan, have had to do so much work to cover up a lot of the corpses that she's left in her wake. And third 
throws most of that out entirely, which is a little weird. Third, as Bilar down as the current house matriarch, as much as this is run as a triumvirate, so to speak, the way that Bilar is presented is that she manages all of the house's espionage insofar as it's coordinated. And in making decisions, the other two sisters both defer to her. And in the house, this is assumed to be because Bilar probably has some huge amount of dirt on the other two, and they don't want her to, to use that against them. They also note that she's a talented sculptor. Most of the three have had some sort of artistic talent or other, but there is no mention of the sorcery in the third edition material that we have so far. Yeah, probably because they didn't want House Sinus to also be a magic house. Possibly, yes. And she also does things like run vast amounts of galas and be the center of attention and so on, as you'd expect from the head of a socialite house. So they've reformed what the Triumvirate is quite heavily in third edition. As you said, all of the elements are there, but they're in different places and emphasized in different ways. Yeah, it's actually weirdly, the other two, I don't mind what they've done to them too much. Bilar, I do actually think that I'm not quite as happy with what they did to her in third, if only because she kind of used to be the house's dirty little secret. <laughs> and now she's running the show. Yeah. yeah, it's like it's why I almost like if they do have the third thing, if she's really truly running it and the other two defer to her, I almost like the idea of keep the sorcery and the sadism from before. And it's not blackmail, it's fear. Yes. That could absolutely work, that she's just a perfect Machiavellian operator on her own family as well. That would explain quite a huge amount of the way things have played out. The next few that we're going for are all from the... Well, this next one is from the first edition book, so we'll get that before I try and preface the comedy that will follow. <laughs> so yeah, from the first edition book, we have Sinus Phelan Debos, a great-grandson of Phelan, who's got all the wit, all the coldness, but much like they had Phelan become inferred, actively hates the hedonism. He went off and joined the Immaculate Order and spends most of his day-to-day -day interfering and getting in the way of other House Sinus operations. He's basically your archetype for this is how you become an anti-Sinus Sinus. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how I'm reading a lot of these, is that there are kind of a lot of ways to not be the stereotype, and Fallon Debos is absolutely into that sort of mould, if you like. Yeah, Sinus herself had two other unexalted daughters, but we don't even get names for them. Word has that them not exalting broke her heart and caused her death, whereas others say that Sinus herself had them killed. And again, we have some slight changes to that in third edition, um, in that Sinus died from an overdose of heroin laced with Dreamstone dust. And so, Dreamstone she... dust, for reference, is what I would consider to be one of the baselines of the harder stuff. That's the sort of things you don't mess with. It's not technically wild, but it basically is. It's not harvested from the wild, but it's harvested from places tainted by the wild. It gives you pretty visions and it takes you away. And it also, that death by poisoning for Sinus also implies that it was an inside job because who's good with poisons? House Sinus. Yeah, you're a Sinus. You're not going to accidentally overdose like that. No. Especially when you are a daughter of the Empress as well, which implies a certain power level. Yes, it definitely feels like it was a stitch-up job, and someone dealt with her. If we're going with the third edition characterizations, Bilal. then... Actually, I, I would go personally with Whistle. That's the dirt on her that she killed her mother. Yeah, okay. Then, uh... 
And now have... we get to the crazy stuff from second edition. We say the crazy stuff. There's two here, but only one of them is the peak of human comedy. Okay, so let's dial this back because second edition Edge is a thing and we've lent on it fairly heavily, but... Yes, second edition did some other things. You may wonder, given that all the things I've mentioned about it just being comedically edgy and ridiculously grimdark, why would Rolls be constantly standing up for and supporting second edition? Let me introduce you to the other thing second edition had a lot of that the later edition didn't. Ridiculous over-the-top anime bullshit. Let's say hello to one Sinus Velar Rokujai. This is a man who's been everything. <laughs> so, when he's a wee little kid... He starts, he goes to the Cloister of Wisdom, goes through a full training at the Cloister of Wisdom, gets trained in all five dragon styles of martial arts. Then once he's done at the Cloister of Wisdom, he doesn't go into the Immaculate Order. No, that'd be too easy. He then goes to the Heptagram and gets trained as a sorcerer. This man, before he's even finished his education, is a trained sorcerer and a practitioner of all five dragon martial arts. Then, once he's studied all he could, and a lot more than almost any other dragon would, and frankly, literally any other dragon in third would, he decides, what profession should I go into? Could I become a soldier? Could I become a spy? Could I become a sorcerer providing services to the house? No, I'm going to become a prostitute. The scandal was enormous because the house put a lot of money into him to get him that lovely education. And then he just said, yeah, I want to go be a prostitute. He gets dragged before the triumvirate. All three heads of the house looking at him and be like, what are you thinking, man? What are you doing? And we don't know what he said, but when they heard his reasoning, they all backed him and started shutting down and censuring any other member of the house that started trying to give him trouble. Mm. So, he spends several years of, high, of high-end escort work, and then he retires and starts operating pleasure palaces all over the aisle, including one in Pangu Prefecture that is an entire town that is just dedicated to brothelry. You come in the gates and there is a code of super discretion and everything there is all drugs and drinks and all the pleasures of the flesh you could imagine. Then, unbeknownst to most, he becomes House Sinus's spy master. <laughs> and with all of these skills, House Cessus finally become aware of him and are afraid. <laughs> they try to have him killed and fail. Because again, five dragon styles, sorcerer. And equally, in second edition, bless the ridiculous nonsense second had, he purged all active Cessus agents from House Sinus. He hmm. used his sorcery, his martial arts, his poison or hired assassins that somehow slip into his establishments to just remove almost every pair of eyes that Cessus had on them. They said all active agents, but then equally second did say that some of the triumvirate were married to Cessus's, which perhaps implies that even Cavus, the judge, isn't actually being used as an active asset, but that Sinus is using him. Mm. Mm. They, um, and he has been equally past that, because, you know, that's not enough. He's been actively taking out key intelligence figures from all of the other houses. Anyone who's been trying to get into the spy game, nope, they're getting killed. If anyone turns their eyes to House Sinus for too long and starts suspecting the espionage game, they die <laughs> because of this guy. Other spies are a lot more established than him and a lot more famous, but in the spy world, fame isn't a good thing. But he, his wide range of skills and talents, his impressive degree of ruthlessness makes him ridiculously subtle and extremely dangerous. How Cessus, the spy house, are worried about this guy, have been for years, and haven't been able to deal with him. <laughs> it's just... Yes! This, this, this guy is just a one-man house operation, basically. 
it, I love him. It's just there's so much bundled into this character. I have nothing else to add because everything has already been said and it's already all been done. It boggles the mind. He's wonderful. He is yeah. one of the most anime exalted characters I've ever encountered. <laughs> it's just oh, I just read all of the the material. I just thought just this Gary Stew. He's wonderful. I love him. And the thing is, it's not even that Gary Stewart second because everyone's like that. It's uh, balanced in setting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll give you that. It, it's exalted. It's, it's you the can syndrome. have them doing ridiculous things. It's the it's, syndrome thing when everyone's super, no one is. <laughs> yeah. I. This is part of the reason why I'm more comfortable in third. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Little bit more grounded. This is why I like second more. The ground is for cowards. And then the last one from second edition, who is equally funny but not quite as over the top, uh, is Sinus Mond, alias Wind Tamer. He's basically exalted Da Vinci. He makes funny flying artifacts and wind-based charms. He's very, very eccentric, notable for being a sinus air aspect instead of wood. And equally, that when people meet him, because he rarely comes out of his workshop, he just sells people his stuff. When he comes out of his workshop, sometimes he's not all there. You kind of go through him a bit, and it's sort of implied that whatever weird artifacty magic he's been doing, because again, in second edition, they did try to lean that Sinus was a bit of a magic house, not as much as some of the others, but they had a fair bit, as if the last guy didn't imply that, that he's actually slowly, basically turning himself into a wind elemental. And it's sort of the thing of, yeah, whenever people see him now, he's not all there, you can almost see through him. And it's that sort of thing. He's starting to fade, because whatever he's doing is taking <laughs> too much of him, but he's too oh. dedicated to his craft to give it up. And yeah, the second edition also, bless second edition, calls him one of the realm's greatest living sorcerers behind Nemon. Yeah, I can see that. If you're starting to magic yourself into being an element or part of an element, then that's probably something that's going to take a while. And again, it leans into the excesses of the house in a way that isn't immediately obvious, I think, is what the key is with Mond. Both of them, honestly, they are both going over the top because you go for the pursuit of perfection thing that Third says. Rokujai ultimately is that because he is the Renaissance man. Yes. He does everything. Is he a fighter? Yes. And he's not just a fighter. He does all of the five dragon style martial arts. That's big. Is he a sorcerer? Of course. Why wouldn't he be? Is he a genius? Naturally. Is he a lover? Mm-hmm. Can he be social? Yep. Is he a spy? Yep. He is the sinus idea of we need to be the best. We need to be perfect. We need that emperor's children mindset. It's just that he actually managed it. That's fair enough. Yeah. He is an exemplar of the house, but... Yeah, it just when someone actually pulls that off in setting, I just kind of look slightly side eye. But maybe that's just me. He was almost certainly some dev's personal character, but I love him anyway. <laughs> He's ridiculous. Right, we should probably get to the holdings at this point because we are an Atlas podcast and we've gone nowhere near places so far in this episode. <laughs> to be fair, we were having to deal with the insanity of Rokujai, which frankly he could have his own series. <laughs> Yes, I'm sure there is some exalted fan fiction out there focusing on Rocky Guy. But if there isn't, oh, please him. start some. He's perfect fodder to that. Write it. Send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> I wish to collect it. All of it. Yes. Anyway, um, Sinus's holdings. We mentioned overall that they are mostly in the East and have connections in that way. Their holdings on the Blessed Isle reflect that. They have Pangu Prefecture, which is on the northeast of the Blessed Isle. It is on one of the limbs that leads to the estuary for the Imperial River. So it hits an awful lot of trade routes and is 
on the eastern side of the Blessed Isle. And as we've covered before, the Blessed Isle is basically a microcosm of creation. And so the eastern side is extra fertile. So Pangu is fertile all year round and is the breadbasket for the legions, apparently. At this point, because of how everything has been divvied up and the empress has disappeared and basically is not making sure that the legions are all properly subsidized and funded from the imperial treasury, the price of providing food to the legions is going up, which is swelling Sinus's coffers in its own way. Also, though, not to be outdone in their usual fields, the whole landscape is perfectly curated. It's almost a show prefecture as much as it is an actual productive farming one. What you're thinking of a sort of eastern countryside idyll, that is what Pangu looks like, and that's deliberate. They've made it look right for the postcard. I am having visions of Marie Antoinette's kind of picturesque little shepherding village where they would go out and scrub the sheep clean before she visited sort of thing. So just making everything absolutely perfect. I don't think it would be quite that ridiculous, but if you want it to be, go for it. It's an example of exalted excess, but a lot of the examples that come up are kind of really well manicured gardens and avenues and those sorts of tended landscapes. They are to just to upset people and use European analogs again for the very, very Eastern themed game. How sinus are French. They're so French in every way. And in addition to that, we mentioned before that the House Sinus slaves are taken to a place on the Blessed Isle to be re-educated. That is here. It is a forest manse called Dreams in Amber, which is basically all slaves will go there to be broken and trained, which is probably as gruesome as you're figuring it to be. It's also something that is akin to a finishing school and palace of opulence. Again, to go with the French analogues, they have somewhere that's almost possibly the palace of Versailles. The first house of equitable prosperity, it's called, which is attached to the Dreams in Amber Mance. And basically any trade delegations from the guild or elsewhere in the realm are invited here to be entertained and intimidated by the sheer scale of the beauty of this place, which was the entire point of Versailles, an opulent display of wealth designed to reflect the grandeur of the people who built it. I was going to say, that's the thing. It's like the Versailles fountain. That's 100% something Sinus will have built. That sort of ludicrous, massive performance that serves literally no purpose other than to drain some of the spare money that you might have lying around. Absolutely. And that kind of trickles out into the general way that Pangu City functions. It's portrayed as a city of luxury, always has parties going on, big airy buildings, plentiful bathhouses. Imagine Party Rome is how I'm sort of going along with this, although perhaps not quite that because it's also a port. As we said, it's on the northern side of the estuary leading to the mouth of the Imperial River. And so you get many residents and visitors from the north and the scavenger lands from there, and in a trade stop as well. It's almost, actually, I'd say, late French Kingdom Bordeaux. Yeah. It's that sort of case of there's comedic amounts of wealth, it's all on show, it's all on display. There is active trade, but it almost does look like a palace coming in. Yes. And it's also cosmopolitan, so go with whatever styles you will here, because they have so many people coming in from the scavenger lands that that affects the fashion of, of the buildings and what people wear because they've just got so many influences coming from outside. 
I imagine that Gloam would probably be similar in this respect, but less ostentatious because Sinus will have more money sloshing around to do it because it's directly tied to a great house and is one of their showpieces. It is the sort of case of notably that Pangu City, it's the only place on the Isle, and the other parts of the realm in the Satrapies do let the guild go around, but it's the only place on the Isle that the guild have a footing in, which almost to me, actually, again, with the opulence and the trade port thing, that actually says to me a lot of the sort of southern Japanese point ports circa sort of... Um, 1580s, are you thinking? The Portuguese stuff? Yeah, I was trying to remember the Japanese name for it. It was the period where the country was closed. Anyway, the um, uh, during the closed country period, that sort of thing of the southern Japanese ports where they let the Dutch in, yep. um, or they let the Portuguese in, or they let the Spanish in, and notably, hilariously, doing them all in separate places because I guess they didn't want them to meet. There's a fun bit of Japanese history for you. But yeah, that sort of thing, because they were also, then by the Shogun, deliberately made to look, frankly, better than a lot of the actual average cities in Japan did to try and scare the foreigners off of thinking, oh, we might be weak, we might be poor. Let them only see the best bit. But yeah, it's that sort of thing of, even though the Japanese aesthetics are technically more reserved for look shy than the realm, which tends to be a bit more Chinese. The same attitude, at least. Yeah, it's the same thing. This exists so that you can come in and trade and appreciate we're better than you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yep, that's absolutely true. It also has a place called the Tourmaline Monastery, which is named for the semi-precious stones that are built into its walls. So even when Halcyonis is doing humble monastic life, you have to build somewhere with semi-precious stones in and everything else. Whenever I think of this place, I think of, bizarrely enough, an insurance office. (laughs) I will tell you a story here of my local history. Norwich Union, around about the time of the centenary of the company, were insuring a shipment of marble, and it goes down, and the policyholder didn't want the salvage back, so Norwich Union decides to salvage this thing and have all of this marble on their hands. So what do they do? They think, oh, our centenary is coming up. Let's build a grand office. And so they build an office based out of about four or five different types of marble, and it looks absolutely magnificent for what it is. If you search for Aviva Marble Hall, you will find it, and it looks absolutely brilliant. Also features a Victorian <laughs> air conditioning unit, believe it or not. I'm just looking at the picture now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's what I imagine when I think of the Tourmaline Monastery. I mean, granted, not so multicoloured because it'll all be one single dome, which granted is multi-hued in itself, but that sort of opulence for something that's really not meant to be (laughs) that, that, that swish. I was going to say something like King Kakaji or something like that. The, um, the gold pavilion in Japan where they literally covered a Buddhist temple in gold. But again, showing off the wealth of the Shogun, but the, the marble tax insurance office is a whole separate thing. (laughs) <laughs> yes yes it is <laughs> uh, don't let no one tell you you're wasting your time here you learn things <laughs> <laughs> okay we should also note the abbot of the Tormaline monastery is cloud lotus who is basically playing a long game against sinus here he's giving sanctuary to escaped slaves in the place which is basically thumbing sinus's authority massively but it's meaning that the monks there are all fanatically personally loyal to the abbot so you've got a huge personal power base there but also 
you've got the house sinus being what they are, it's a very, very likely place for people to go to be seditious against the house. So it will probably be one of the first things that is flattened if the civil war ever comes to the aisle because it's too much of a danger in Sinus's home province. Equally, yes, another wonderful city to compare this one to because Pangu City is just a great place. It kind of looks like Venice. The whole place is filled with estuaries and little islets with residencies and shops built on stilts on them with the largest holding the Heaven Fragrance Market, a bazaar selling perfumes, drugs, remedies, and occasionally old recipes, and all the crime. Pretty much, yeah. It's one of those places where Sinus can just do all of its business, both legal and illegal, and all sorts of trade and contacts can be made. It just sounds like a magnificent, magnificent place. If you're looking for your nexus within the realm, then Pangu City is absolutely the place to go for it. So. That's basically Pangu Prefecture. The other place that is noted as a sample satrapy for House Sinus to hold is Grey Falls, which is a recent acquisition for them. By recent, I would assume handed out pre-Empress's departure, because this is one of the few places where the garrison commander is of the same house as the satrap. Yeah, I can't... Actually, no, that, that tells me, weirdly, the other thing then. I don't think that would have been handed out before the Empress went. I would imagine that they acquired... The house got it because the garrison commander had it. Makes sense. Um, because I can't see the Empress giving any one house something this significant in totality, and I can't see any of the other houses letting them do it unless it went in that sort of way. Yeah, my only thought with that was that I can't see any of the houses letting them do it at such a time when that sort of alignment is more powerful than usual. But yeah, we don't have a source for when this happened. We just know that it's recent in inverted commas. And the reason for that is because the place is never held by anyone for very long. It's the Empress's deliberate design because it was considered to be a good place for rebellious dynasts to start forming rebellions. And that's because of its location. Grey Falls is, if you are looking at a map of creation... It is in the scavenger lands, beyond the scavenger lands almost. So it's in the yeah. east. If you're looking at the third edition map, it is by the fork in the river just north of Vanihar. So if you hit the lake between Rathless and Mathalanka, then you've gone too far. But it's that river network. The main portion of it is built on a fortress and it is also a warmance that powers the Sword of Creation. It's called the Four Winds Throne that's built there. And it's built at the confluence of Hawks Run, the Southern Digeli, and Giants Moor rivers. So you've got all of these rivers converging in that location. And then you've got the rivers flowing through the Giants Moor, which is a whacking great stone giant's head through the Grey Falls themselves as a waterfall. It's just a magnificently sort of picturesque way of doing it. it. Again, to go with other comparisons, this is your Falls of Rauros. Yeah, it is the easternmost satrapy, let's say the easternmost scavenger land satrapy. The realm only really has two notable satrapies in the scavenger lands and they're on either side of it. And Grey Falls is gently put on the wrong side of it because the realm doesn't own most of the scavenger lands and the only powers there that are notable, that is to say Lookshire Nexus, I love Great Forks dearly, but yeah, it's not important. <laughs> not politically, anyway. Not, not politically and not militarily, and not even really economically. Not compared to Nexus, no. anyway. 
those two big powers. Luxshire is actively hostile to the realm, and Nexus is only friendly for as long as they don't try to reduce its sovereignty. Yes. That said, they do have some pretty decent trade agreements negotiated there. House Sinus has a bunch of agreements, particularly with Nexus, that they can send boats right the way up the Yellow River to Greyfalls. And look shy via the Confederation. Yes. There's a scary amount of agreement between all the various parties in this area to make Greyfalls function. For all that we say that Lookshire is hostile, that the Guild doesn't like the realm, and all of that, the amount of agreement between all of those parties and any of the petty kingdoms along the way that are needed to make Greyfalls function as a satrapy is huge. And it speaks to quite how much Sinus can knit everything together into a trade network really well. For, yeah, for what it's worth, Lukshai's official position, as much as it does have a beef with the realm, Lukshai's official position is merely to defend the river province. Yeah. And Greyfalls is a bit too far east for that, so they shouldn't have too much problem with Greyfalls. And I can believe it, especially since in the four wars that the realm has had with the Confederation of the Rivers, which is basically Lukshai and its mates, pretty much the first move in all of them is cut off access to Greyfalls. So I <laughs> imagine this is a case of, this is how we keep the peace. Yeah. Although not all of those, because Grey Falls was only taken in Realm Year 89, so there was at least one war with Lukshai where that wasn't a concern. Yeah. But it's also, supposedly, I, I think this might be a case of the writers shrinking the map a little more than it needs to be, that because Grey Falls is a fortress and is a hugely powerful warmance, it's held up as a bogeyman for what the realm could be. Lukshai will point and say, look, Grey Falls is terrible and awful and we can't do anything about it. So the realm's military power is something we need to unite against. Otherwise, we're all going to be like that, is basically how it's used in Lukshai propaganda. So that is getting blown out of proportion. It's weeks and weeks and weeks away as well, is the thing. Yes, that's the thing. The distance from Lukshai is huge. Even with the river. Yeah, it's got to be one heck of a warmance, frankly. If they can project power that far from Grey Falls... And it's used to power the Imperial Mance, which is to say it's a part of the battery for the Sword of Creation, which is the creation-wide nuke that can be deployed if necessary. So the place has a heck of a lot of power should it need it. But then equally, if it falls, it actually is an extremely big deal for the realm. That's true. Kind of had that sort of status in that it had an official imperial residence for a while. Well, I say for a while. It has that status. The Empress never actually abused it, but basically made it available to any of her appointees that needed it, really, yeah. or occasionally needed it. And basically, it was used as a way for the House staff and the people who were managing it to interact with regional politics and to gain sway over the satrap and that sort of things yeah. because of the status that having that imperial palace would give them. Yeah. But the other one that is important is that technically it isn't called the Greyfall Satrapy, even though even in setting, people will just call it the Greyfall Satrapy because it's not the only settlement in there because it is bigger than just the city. It does have a lot of the surrounding sort of areas and towns and villages. Yes. Ex Exalted is generally bad at portraying things as larger than city-states, but... Grey Falls falls into the category of it is much larger than the, the city-state, or yeah. at least it should be. Uh, because it's technically referred to as the wonderfully charming Eastern Threshold Administrative District. And it claims, well, no, it on paper claims authority of the entire scavenger lands, which, if any satrap is an idiot enough to outright do it, is a great way to jeopardise all of their lovely trade deals up and down the yellow. 
Yeah, but in practical terms, it really doesn't do a whole heap beyond Great Falls. So that there are little petty kingdoms surrounding it that enhance its trade and so on. It's also, speaking of trade, we should probably get into that. But the reason that Sinus wanted it, as opposed to a military house, is because it is where the Golden Road trade route starts. So basically, it is a gateway to all of the kind of crops and exotic substances and everything else from the east. If you think about all of the various compounds and so on that come out of the Amazon and have been discovered from that, then you can get things like that by trading with the eastern forest kingdoms and tribes and everything else that comes out of there. And so that's why Sinus wants the thing. It brings in drugs, it brings in spices, it brings in slaves. And you have all sorts of links with other kingdoms, including the, I will try and say this properly first time, the Ixcoatli province or region that is marked on the third edition map. It explicitly says that that's one of the places that they will trade with because it will bring in so much of that fabulous rainforest-esque stuff. Yeah. It's also equally, it's their gateway to the east, and also it serves as the House Sinus anyway, because the realm does have the sort of Kalin, um, the Kalinti and the Marin satrapies that it can try and use to access scavenger lands, but they aren't Sinus mm. satrapies. This is how they access the wealth of the scavenger lands, which it's a really conveniently situated place in both directions. Yes. And it's also something that I think we should probably get to touch on the politics as kind of the last point here. We've spoken about the garrison commander and the satrap both being Sinus. The ruling class in the local population and the local ruler are entirely dependent upon House Sinus and the realm for their position. The realm did this quite deliberately. They are raised up from the Nuri ethnic minority in the place, which is disliked by the majority of the population. And so there has to be active propping up of the Nuri ruling class in order to uh, support them because the Nuri are vastly outnumbered by everyone else. And so the prince is entirely a cat's paw for the realm here. There's no real independence because the instant they start showing independence from the realm, the realm can pull support and the Nuri will be wiped out. Yeah. It's just another case of Sinus being... I don't even want to say soft power, because this is the case that literally everyone is aware of what this is, but yeah. Yes. I don't know whether it was Sinus necessarily, because um, this is a fairly long-standing thing in, by implication. That's true. So um, so this is just the realm. Sinus haven't fixed it, yeah. Sinus haven't fixed it, but Sinus aren't going to fix it, because <laughs> yeah. it's not broke as far as they're concerned, but that is... The realm for you in a nutshell. And that's how Sinus for you. And that's how Sinus. <laughs> that is how Sinus, yes. We've reached the end of probably most of the material we should reasonably cover in one of these episodes. <laughs> we will cover Grey Falls in a bit more detail later on when we actually get to going around the East in itself. But that has been it for how Sinus. Next time, Law Wise, we will be talking about another spy house as another spy house which doesn't technically exist. So we may or may not be talking about House of Celsius. But yes, we will absolutely be talking about the law of House of Celsi. But in the meantime, if you like what we do, please do drop us a review. Let us know how we're doing. Drop us an email at wondrousatlas at gmail.com. Follow the show on Twitter at wondrousatlas. Let us know what you think. If you have any questions at all, any of those outlets, you will be able to find us. And we will now be moving on to the story hooks element of the show. But if you are leaving us for the law portion, thank you ever so much for listening. And we do hope you enjoyed opening up the Wondrous Atlas Creations Destiny with us.
goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Wondrous Atlas of Creation's Destiny, an exalted podcast presented by Aramethius and Rails. Check out the show notes and story seeds from this episode at wondrousatlas.wordpress.com and if you have any questions, drop us an email at wondrousatlas at gmail.com. The opening music for this podcast is Travelling to the Blessed Isle by James Semple and the closing music is Exploring Creation, also by James Semple. Both tracks are taken from the album Exalted, Dreams of the Second Age and are property of Onyx Path Publishing, used with permission. If you want to have them investigating House Ragara. Honey trapping Alistair Crowley. There's a spoiler for the Ragara episode. Um, <laughs> yes. Oh, oh, yes. It has to be done. It has to be done. That's, that's what that is. <laughs> right. Anyway, civil. Last. Let's say hello to one Cessus Belar Rokujai. This Say that guy. again. Say Cessus? that again. Cessus, oh, Cessus. Bloody hell. Sinus <laughs> Velar Rokujai. I'm a fool. Um, yes. If Say it was, again. Yeah. Sinus Velar Rokujai. There we go.